We're taking a week's pause in our series on the Gospel of John in order to launch one of the most important weeks that we have all year, prayer week. We started this morning at 7.15 and tonight we'll gather at 5 and that launches us into a week with lots of things that we're praying, uh, lots of events rather that we're, we're, we're praying together and I'll highlight a few of those in a moment. But I want to remind you there are three reasons why we dedicate this week to prayer. First, prayer is an important part of our relationship with God. Prayer is the way we commune with him, and it's a critical part of the spiritual life of every follower of Jesus. The challenge, however, I trust I don't need to convince you that prayer is important, the challenge is that many of us, our prayer lives are not where we would want them to be. I've said this so many times, but it bears repeating that prayer is often the most talked about but the least practiced discipline in the Christian life and in the church. Secondly, We need to pray because, to be honest, we just need God's help in so many ways. And prayer is the means by which we seek his empowerment, we seek his intervention, we seek his provision, we seek his grace. And today, if you're here and you've come to church because you need help, you have done what you should have done. And then there's some things that you need to do from here. Third reason is we need the reminder that we need God's help. It's not just that we are called to pray because you're a follower of Jesus, not just because you need God's help, but here's the thing. We need the reminder that we need God's help. Daniel Henderson, who mentored me and taught me just about everything I know about corporate prayer, says this, prayerlessness is my declaration of independency from God. And friends, this is an important thing for us to consider because in our context Large churches typically neglect prayer. It's a strange thing, but they do. I praise God that that hasn't been the case for us, and while we still have ways to go and growing and what it means to be a a prayer-filled culture, we have established a baseline of prayer, and Prayer Week is a part of that. In fact, when I candidated here in 2008, when the elders told me, we want you to preach on a Sunday, actually I think it was two Sundays, I asked them if I could also lead a Sunday evening prayer meeting. And the reason that I wanted to do that is I wanted this church to know that a vote for me as the lead pastor was a vote for an Act 6-4 model of ministry, which is a ministry based upon, the, upon prayer and the word of God. Now, those are the two key pillars upon which ministry is built. And for the last 10 years, along with our monthly Sunday night prayer gathering that we call our worship-based prayer night, we have dedicated a week in, with prayer week to fanning the embers of prayer in our lives. And so this week, we need this opportunity to remind us what we know is true. Prayer is important. And we'll use these activities and these prayer events and even this teaching this morning, I trust, to help us to pray and to pray better together. So if you want to take some steps in what it means to pray, then engage in our prayer week. The best way to learn to pray is not by reading a book or by listening to a sermon, although those aren't bad things, but the best way is to pray with other people. 
So a few highlights of the things we'll be doing this week. Tonight is our worship-based prayer night at 5 o'clock. We are having all of our congregations here. So Fishers, Castleton, Greenwood, and One Fellowship Church will all be in the room, and we're going to pray about our vision to reach the city through the next door mission. We're going to pray for our individual churches, churches that we've planted, finding out what God is doing in them, and the police chief and the fire chief of the city of Indianapolis will be here, and we're going to pray for their needs of our first responders. So we invite you to come tonight, and we will intercede and pray. It's a great moment for us together as a church. Then Monday morning, we start at 6.30 with a men's prayer event. Brad Merchant will be doing some teaching, and then we'll pray together as men. One o'clock in the afternoon, there's an event for women. If you are a a working woman, we'd love to have you take your lunch hour then. Come and join us. If you're a stay-at-home mom, take that hour. Come and be here. I'll be doing some teaching with our women on how the prayer language of lament helps us to deal with pain and then lead us to trust, and then we'll be doing some prayer activities together. Tuesday, we have a prayer summit, so 9 to 12. We'd love to have you come. Our staff will be um, sort of in the middle of all of that, kind of the the, the gravitational pull of their lives. We'll we'll welcome you into their prayer experience. It's going to be a three-hour interactive prayer time. We're going to sing, read scripture, pray, and we're going to be praying through the book of Titus, line by line, asking God to fulfill his word and then Wednesday from 7 to 8 in this room will be a prayer meeting led by our high school students, and we'll pray for high school students, pray over them, and pray for the needs of our church. Thursday, there's a prayer meeting at noon inside the Indiana War Memorial, and Friday is our first Friday prayer event at the Ministry Center for Mission. So you can find all of the information on the church's website, yourchurch.com forward slash prayer week, and hope you'll take some time to have a concerted effort to pray and to renew your commitment to seek God's face. Prayer week takes commitment and it takes conviction. There will be hundreds of reasons why you might not consider taking the next step in your prayer life. And yet, we've seen God move mightily in the lives of our people because of this week. We've witnessed God do amazing things as we've prayed And so I want to encourage you to engage because of what God is going to do. In Luke 10, the singular thought that I want you to leave with is this. Church, I'm calling you today to pray like you mean it. I want you to pray like you mean it. This theme has been rolling through my soul for some time. The Lord has led me to multiple texts over the last three months, and I want to share with you a burden and a challenge that it seems as though the Lord has put on my heart, I believe, for our church. What I'm going to do is walk you through Luke chapter 10, his first three verses and a few other texts, and then I'm going to issue a challenge to you and invite you to respond at the end of this sermon, which is for you to choose one or two things over which you will pray like you mean it for the next 12 weeks. So from now until Easter, what one or two things that if God would to intervene in your life, if he were to answer a prayer, you'd be able to look at that and just go, that's unbelievable. And what thing... Would you commit to today to pray earnestly for, to pray like you mean it? I want to help you see this in this text. There's a calling that exists. There's difficulties that are real. 
And there's a call to prayer at the end. So a calling, difficulties, and prayer. That's the outline for today. So first, here's this calling. The text in front of us in Luke's gospel records the commissioning of 72 disciples for a very specific mission. These are 72 additional disciples from the 12 disciples that Jesus commissions in Luke chapter 5. He gave those disciples the authority to go and proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal and now this mission of these 72 is building upon that smaller mission. Verse 1 says, after this. Well, after this is when Jesus says in verse 62 of chapter 9, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've repented of your sins and confessed Christ as the Lord and received him as your Savior, that changes your perspective such that your passion for following Jesus fundamentally gets in front of everything else. It becomes the first priority, or as Jesus said, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So in light of that calling, then we find this mission, this calling that Jesus gives to these 72 others. Now, this number 72 is rather interesting. It's either 70 or 72. There's a little bit of a textual issue that we don't have time to explain today. But it may be that Jesus is using this number as connected to Genesis chapter 10 that had a list of nations, and there was 70 nations. The idea is that Jesus is sending these disciples all over the, the known world at the time. Now, Jesus has a strategy after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So apparently Jesus knew that there were some cities that he intended to go to. There's a strategy that Jesus has that in order to go to those cities, he's first going to send these 72 there, and he sends them two by two. The reason they go is in, in pairs is likely because they're going to go investigate the receptivity of these cities, and if they are not receptive, then there will be judgment that is pronounced on them, and so this rejection needs to be established in the mouth of two witnesses, thus the two-by-two two mission. He has this strategy to send them on ahead, they're to enter these cities, they're to proclaim the gospel, and if you were to read on in chapter 10 you would see that they are to report back as to how they are received and to note those cities that are unrepentant. Notice this very specific calling, they're to go, they're to be sent, and this strategy. The reason why it's important to note is every once in a while I run into people who equate planning and developing a strategy as if it's ungodly. Now, granted, you could overly plan, you can overly trust your plans. I totally get that. I've been guilty of it a hundred times. have to always work towards the opposite direction. But for some people, they think true spirituality is when you wing it or when you're spontaneous. I've had people say that they felt like the Lord was really leading me when I was speaking and I wasn't using my notes, and I'm sure that's true. But I would also argue there's times when I'm actually reading what I've written and the Lord was speaking too. So, so spontaneous and planned are both empowered by the Spirit. The issue is not an either-or choice, but rather that while you're planning and while you're strategizing, you're also praying earnestly. It's the absence of prayer that makes planning unwise. 
This is important. A couple weeks from now, February um, 17th and 24th, we're going to lay out for you some of the things that are on the hearts of our elders, a plan, a strategy for how do we use our resources and deepen our discipleship and reach our world. And we have some ideas. And when we lay that before you, know that we're laying before you a plan that we're praying about and asking you to pray for our plan and for in our planning to actually seek the Lord earnestly, knowing that the best laid plans of men don't do anything unless the Lord blesses it. The Bible says, Horses prepared for the day of the battle, but the battle belongs to the Lord. So Jesus calls his disciples to pray earnestly as they execute his strategy. There's this calling on their lives. And I trust that you know that while Jesus hasn't given you this specific calling, as in Luke chapter 10, he has given every follower, a G, every follower of Jesus a calling that's a part of this mission that Jesus has placed us on. It sounds like this. Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the reason that that calling is important is because, as a Christian, if you don't realize what your calling in life is, or if you begin to live as if you have forgotten it, your prayer life will be significantly affected. The reality is that prayer week is a good time for us to ask ourselves some important questions about the calling of God on our lives. You might consider asking yourself some of these questions. Why has God placed you in the world? Why has God put you in the career that you're in? Why has he put you in the school that you're in, in your neighborhood? What are the unique gifts that God has given you? What is your mission? What, what is it that God has placed on your heart in the fulfillment of this great commission? Because all of us have been given this mission to go and make disciples. Or as a church, our mission is to ignite a passion to follow Jesus. And the question is, what is your role in that? What are you striving for? What's important to you? What are you living for? The reason that those questions are important is because your answer to that calling question directly affects how you pray. Jesus launches these disciples out, placing a calling over their lives. There are things that God wants to do in and through our church. There's things he wants to do to help us reach our neighbors, to reach in the urban center of the city, to reach unreached people groups. There are things that God wants to do, and we're ready to do, and one of the things he is waiting for is for the church to seek him so that when it is accomplished, we know it was he who did it through us, not we who did it all by ourselves. So the calling is critical. Calling. Here's the second thing. This text also tells us that there's going to be difficulties. The second reality connected to this text is related to the challenges that we are going to face. A disciple of Jesus not only has a calling over his or her life, but also the world is still broken. Jesus, as he instructs these disciples, and he, as he instructs the disciples in other places, guarantees that resistance and difficulties will come. In John 16, Jesus told his disciples as such. He didn't pull any punches. He told them that in the world they would have trouble, but they would be encouraged he had overcome the world. So the mission of God then, and this is important for you to understand, is to set his followers in a world that is not right, to set them in a world where the enemy is on attack 
And we see this specifically in two places. Verse 2, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There's the first place. The idea is that as they go and do this ministry, they're going to see the wide open harvest field. They're going to see all of the opportunity, but they're also going to know that the laborers, those who are with them, aren't as many as what they will need. They will have to deal with knowing that the odds are stacked against them knowing that there's going to be a clear gap between what could happen and what will happen because there's not enough people. They will have to deal regularly with the fact that they will always be the minority in their culture. And as others would later discover, they will constantly face opposition. It simply comes with the territory. It comes with the calling. And in fact, these gaps are divinely given. Here's why. Because if there were no gaps, God's people would not pray. You pray when there's gaps. I pray when there's gaps. Divinely designed gaps are motivations for us to say, we don't, we've thought about it, we've analyzed it, we don't know how to do this, we need God to intervene. And the fact of the matter is, we always needed God to intervene. But the challenge is that for many of us, the time that we pray is not when we see the gap, it's when we don't know what to do with the gap and we've tried everything else to bridge the gap. We've researched it, we've read about it, we've analyzed it, we've talked to our friends about it, we've looked at all the dynamics, and then we have this thought, oh, wait a minute, maybe I should talk to the creator of the universe who owns all resources about what I should do with this. I remember as a young pastor when a man in my first church told me, Mark, get used to unlimited opportunities and limited resources. Or as I said to a fellow pastor this week on the phone, we were discussing some church difficult decision that he was wrestling with. I said to him, you know, I like the problems that come with this decision better than the problems that come with that decision. Notice that there's no decision without problems. Just which problems do you want? That's, I think, a helpful perspective to have. Like I'm not trying to... to usher in an army of spiritual Eeyores who just walk through life like, oh, it's going to be awful, but we'll do our best. But what, what I am saying is that you ought not be surprised if you share the gospel and it's not immediately received. You ought not be surprised when the things that you're dealing with are difficult. You ought not be surprised if you're a parent and your children are disobedient. Instead, you ought to be shocked when they are obedient. You ought not be surprised when your friends struggle with deep temptations or fall into sin. You ought not be surprised when there's opposition at work. It's just a matter of perspective. And yet so often our perspective is off, is it not? A few months ago, our microwave oven broke above the range. and Bought a new one and told my wife I'm going to install it. She said, how long do you think it'll take? And that's always a dangerous question to answer. I said, an hour or two, and, and to put a microwave above and above, you know that you have to take out this piece of paper that and it goes underneath, and you got to drill the holes like right where it is, but in order to get the holes just right, you got to cut the paper. Just, I mean, it's like you're back in kindergarten, and you know, like you failed the cutting class, and this is not going to work. And so I was drilling these holes. As I'm drilling, I'm just smiling, and I'm thinking, these holes need to be like this big because there's no way those holes are going to drop down in that microwave just perfectly. So I drilled them anyways. I was like, well... Not going to worry about it. It's not going to work the first time anyway. So I put the microwave up, clicked it in, pushed it up, put the bolts in, and I was like, no way, they fit. 
I rolled my wife, I was like, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here, you gotta see this. This is a, like the first time this has ever happened, right? So I, I approach home improvement projects with the mindset it's gonna take twice as long, cost three times as much, and be always a good sermon illustration at some level, right? Because <laughs> it's never gonna turn out exactly like I planned. Well, Jesus tells his disciples when it comes to following him, there's going to be difficulties. So listen, friend, you may be passionate about something, but listen to me carefully. Rather than being surprised or frustrated or angry or cynical that other people don't get your passion, you just need to realize that people not being on board with your thing is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because frankly, if everybody was into your thing, you would need God's help. You can be angry that people don't care as deeply as you do. You can worry about the problems that you're going to face. You can bemoan the fact that people aren't as committed as you are. Or you can realize that part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is you get to live with the gaps and say, Lord, help me, and to pray earnestly. Look at verse 3. Here's the other difficulty. Go your way, he says. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, you don't have to own lambs or wolves to know what happens when lambs and wolves get together. Lambs don't win. The idea is that Jesus is sending these disciples out and they will face inconceivable odds. They will not normally be successful, and they should expect opposition. In fact, they should be surprised when they are well-received. So that opposition, distractions, and never enough resources are actually part of what it means to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus. And that's not meant to depress you. That's meant to help you to know that success in life and in ministry is not about having all of the gaps filled that you see, but rather it is that you seek the God of the gaps who not only wants to see ministry done and to see lives changed, but also wants to change us in the process. So there's a calling, there's difficulties. Finally here, third, there is this command to pray. Jesus commands these disciples, in light of what they will face, to pray earnestly. That's the phrase. It's actually a single Greek word that has gripped me. What does it mean to pray earnestly? Can you think of the last time that you prayed earnestly? Let me give you four suggestions as to what it means. First, it means that you pray with desperation. The Greek word here is used in other places in the New Testament and it means to beg. Think of the last time you begged for something. I mean like really, really begged. In Luke 5, Luke uses it for a leper who when he saw Jesus begged him to make him clean. Imagine you're a leper. There's no hope of a cure for you, and you hear that Jesus is coming through town, and he heals lepers. And you show up, and the text tells us that the leper begged Jesus for healing. Or in Luke 9, in verse 38, a father who pleads with Jesus to heal his son pleading with him. So this is the kind of praying that involves great desperation, knowing that God is our only hope. 
So one of the things that I want to happen in the course of prayer week and then beyond the next 12 weeks is instead of trying to figure everything out and then saying, hmm, maybe we should pray about it, that your first step is, while we do all these other things, let's also pray earnestly. Pray with desperation. I mean, I trust you know that God's intervention can change anything instantaneously. We're also to pray with consistency. In Luke 21, Jesus told his disciples that they shouldn't let their hearts be weighed down by the cares of this life or use various ways to dull the pain, but rather they should be awake at all times. Listen to Luke 21 Beginning at verse 34, he says this, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. For that day, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. So the idea is a consistency where you are regularly and faithfully praying. You are sort of manning your post, if you will, or staying at your place and continually, fervently praying. Some of you are followers of Jesus today because somebody prayed consistently for you. Like somebody interceded for you. Like what Jesus prayed for Peter when Peter was told, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Can you imagine hearing that? That's a scary statement. Satan wants to sift you, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith would hold. Some of you are followers of Jesus today because a grandma or a grandpa or a mama or a dad or an uncle or an aunt or some pastor prayed for you. Some of you, you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. You haven't repented of your sins yet. And the reason you're here is because somebody has been praying for you. And even now they're praying that on this very day that you'd become a Christian and turn from your sins and follow Jesus. We're to pray with desperation. We're to pray with consistency. We're to pray with confidence. In Acts chapter 4, the disciples prayed for boldness in the midst of persecution, they were asking God to give them what he told them that they would, he would give them. He, they, they, they anchored their prayer life on the promises of God's word, and so they, they asked God for what he said that he would give them, and he did. So I'm going to give you one more. Those are three. There's one more, but can I just ask you to consider, when was the last time you prayed like that? When's the last time you prayed with desperation and with consistency and with confidence? I guess if, if I were to ask you, you could probably tell me of a time or two or maybe more where you prayed like that. And yet, here's the thing that I want to suggest to you. There is far more need in our lives and in the world to have those stories just be a few of them. What if, on the other hand, we began earnestly seeking God for things that we need him to do, we prayed into the gaps, and we acknowledged, God, we need you to intervene. We need your help. The challenge, friends, is that we live in a culture that runs cross-grain, and the gravitational pull is away from this kind of earnest prayer life. Because of our self-reliance, it's a part of our culture. Because of our wealth, we have options. Paul warned, told Timothy to warn those who are rich in this world that they be not high-minded or trust in uncertain riches. What does wealth do? Wealth gives you options. 
If you're poor, you don't have options. And so therefore, impoverished people often have better prayer lives than those who are wealthy. Because wealthy people can use money to get what they need. They can solve their problems. They can bridge their own gaps. That's one of the reasons why I want you to consider two things or one thing for which you need to pray earnestly. What, what gap do you feel in your life right now that you need God's help in what situation or circumstance? If answered that God would be glorified, you would see him intervene and you would straight up believe Jesus is alive. I've seen him move. And yet for some of you, it's been so long since you've seen that that you're beginning to doubt, is this really legit at all? And I'm saying, Jesus says to pray earnestly for God's intervention. George Mueller was such a man who had a robust prayer life. I'm not sure he's a model because of how radical he was. He lived in the 1800s, was a man who cared for orphans. He never publicized his needs. He merely prayed about it, and God answered marvelously. Don Whitney who was with us last week for a staff training time, wrote a book called Praying the Bible. We have that available in our resource area. He writes this, Through his orphanage in Bristol, Mueller cared for as many as 2,000 orphans at a time, more than 10,000 in his lifetime, yet he never made the needs of his ministries known to anyone except to God in prayer. Mueller had over 50,000 specific recorded answers to prayer in his journal. 30,000 of which he said were answered the same day or the same hour that he prayed them. Some of you who are staff people are like, oh yeah, come on. Okay, let's just cut that in half, <laughs> right? It's still amazing, 10%. It's remarkable. He writes, five, that's 500 different answers to prayer each day, more than one per day, every single day of the year for 60 years. Now, we might not have the kind of gift of faith that Mueller did or Mueller did, but what we need to do is to think through what would it look like if we recorded what we are praying for and then to celebrate when God answers. So pray with desperation, pray with consistency, pray with confidence. Finally here, pray with hope. The last suggestion doesn't come from Luke chapter 10 or this word in particular, but rather from something Jesus said in John 16. He said this, Truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Here's this, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. A number of months ago I was meditating on this verse and I thought, what's the connection between joy and prayer? And then I, it dawned on me that I am motivated when I hear the answers to prayer that God does in other people, and I'm motivated to pray when God answers prayer in my life. Like, nothing motivates me to pray more than when I see God answer. That joy creates momentum for greater asking. So during a devotional with our staff, I asked some of them to consider what answer to prayer would bring them joy such that they would take the risk of starting to pray for it. So what if God did it would create so much joy in you that you're not praying about that you should start praying for now? I wanted them to consider what God might do if they took the step of faith to pray with joy in mind. And it was stunning to see what God did in the life of one of our pastors, Pastor Zach 
Cochran, our pastor of student ministries. I want you to watch this. So me and my wife have been trying to have a child for the last few years, and we hadn't hit that point of hopelessness, but we had hit that point of anxiousness, that we couldn't celebrate that with that friend on Instagram when they announced their new child, or when somebody asked this question, hey, do you have any kids? It would hit us in our hearts. And we would say, yeah, we're praying that the Lord give us one, but if we we're honest, we weren't, because we were terrified to pray. Because we walked with families left and right that have prayed for a child and they haven't gotten it. And if I'm honest, I was terrified to pray because I scared my heart would get bitter toward God for not giving me this gift. Then I was sitting in a meeting one day and Mark, Pastor Mark led a devotional about John 16, 24, that you have yet to pray in my name, ask and you will receive so your joy may be complete. And he challenged us to pray dangerous prayers. And I challenged myself to beg God, to wrestle with God on a daily basis for a month that he would give us a child. My wife was even terrified to even take a test. And at the end of that month, end of those 30 days, my wife would not take a test. And I challenged her, take the test. I think God has provided for us. And Halloween day, I woke up to a joyful noise in the bathroom where God had answered my begging prayers. Praying like I mean it didn't just change my life, but I'm convinced in this story it created life. Mm, amen. Isn't that great? Praise God. Let me be clear. God answered their prayer. He may not answer it in the time frame that you want. In fact, his answer may not exactly be what you want, but God always promises that his ways are good, and he invites us, even calls us to pray earnestly. And yet, although that's theologically true, practically, what if? What if there were things in our church? What if there were things in your life that God is merely waiting to move on because he knows that we need the answer, but even more, we need to pray? We need to be able to trust him and to rely on him and to seek his face. And so the calling as we go into this prayer week is this. I'm inviting you to embrace the calling over your life, the reality of the difficulties that you face, and then to see those gaps and say, I'm going to pray like I mean it, to pray desperately, to pray faithfully, to pray convictionally, and to pray expectantly, to see God at his best, to see God in what he can do, and to pray like we mean it. When you came in this morning, you should have received a bulletin, and on that bulletin is one of these uh, sticky notes. And um, invite those of you who are helping us to get ready for this next moment, if you go ahead and grab those doors and move them in. Here's what we're going to do. I want you to take these out, and I want to challenge you to write down one or two things that you are going to pray earnestly about over the next 12 weeks. Now, you may need some more time. You can't do it right now. That's fine. Or it may be that you just need to write this out and put this in your Bible or hold on to it because it's a private thing. That's, that's fine as well. But there's another exercise I'd like for us to consider, and it's this. I would like for us to mark this day in the next 12 weeks and to say, here are the things that we're praying about as a church. And as God begins to move, let's see a visual reminder that God is answering our prayers. And so in a moment, we're going to sing together. And as you've written these down, these doors represent the prayers that we're asking God to answer. The white doors do. And so you can come, and as we sing, take this, put this on the door, um, and uh, know what door you're putting it on. There's numbers on them, because here's the thing. Notice that these doors are white, and this door is green. This door is the door of answered prayers. 
And the vision is that these doors are going to be over our um, facility over the next 12 weeks. And what's going to happen is we're going to see prayer requests that are going to come from this door. And when it's answered, you're going to come on that Sunday and say, man, I can't wait to go to church. I'm going to find my door, take my prayer request, and I'm going to come over, and I'm going to put it on this door and say, whoops, <laughs> I got it. There we go. Look at what God has done. Look at what God has done. And the joy of our hearts knowing that there's going to be prodigal children whose names were on white doors who are now on green doors. There's going to be people who were in a desperate spot over something going on in your life and in your marriage. And on a Sunday, you and your wife are going to grab that note and you're going to go put it on the green door. And you're going to know God moved. Like he intervened. And the joy that you will experience in that moment will not only encourage the other people around you, but it will convince you, my king is alive. He has heard my prayer. And God is intervening in the course of my life. And so I want you to dare to take the step of praying earnestly for whatever it is that's going on in your world and your life today. So as we sing... Take a few moments. You can write out what that prayer request is. If you didn't get one, there's tables in the back. You could slip out, grab one. Again, you can put it in your Bible, hold on to it if you want, or put that on the door, as people have in our first service, so that we can have a record of we began to pray and we saw God move. And imagine what would happen over the next 12 weeks if we covenanted together and said, until Easter, we're going to pray like we mean it. We're going to pray like we mean it. So let's do that together, church. And let's see how God might be pleased to move. Lord, help us in this moment because there's some folks who are nervous about praying just in the same way that Pastor Zach was and we ask you to give us grace to have not curling fingers around our desires but to say, Lord, not your will but mine. And yet, God, here's what I'm asking you for. Help us to believe in faith but also to trust you. So Lord, grant us grace now as we respond to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.